If you have your Bible or if you want to look on the back of your sermon outline is our scripture text for today, again from the Psalms. A psalm that affirms life. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So far, the reading of God's life-affirming word. People change. People change. Here's a picture of a man who died this year. His name is Bernard Nathanson. Some of you may have heard of Bernard Nathanson. If you know his story, he was a leading obstetrician in Manhattan who ran and owned a clinic that oversaw 60,000 abortions. 5,000 of them at uh, Dr. Nathanson's own hand. He was a crusader in the 1960s, in the 1970s, uh, in the pro-choice movement for abortion, working for legislation, working in the courts, working in the public, for public opinion to legalize abortion. But within a year of Roe versus Wade, uh, in 1973, Bernard Nathanson began to have moral doubts about this cause to which he had so singularly dedicated his life. And in 1974, he wrote a, a highly noted article in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine where he talked about his role in running this clinic. And he revealed his growing doubts to the medical community about the pro-choice dogma that he had been promoting that abortion was simply the removal of an undifferentiated mass of cells and wasn't the killing of a developing human being. And as he referred to those 60,000 uh, abortions under his oversight, he confessed, quote, to an increasing certainty that I had in fact presided over 60,000 deaths. People change. People do change their minds and attitudes on large issues. Just because you held an opinion once and it was even firm does not mean you can't grow and learn and, and your perspective change. Bernard Nathanson began to change. By 1980, the weight of the evidence in favor of his, uh, uh, his new thoughts, his new pro-life position overwhelmed him so much he came to regard the position, as he wrote in several of his books, as unjustified homicide. He refused to perform it any longer. And you may know, in 1985, he produced a documentary that went around the world. It was called The Silent Scream. 
And what he did is he took the newly developed sonogram imagery that could actually look inside the womb and he recorded an abortion in progress. And at one point, the viewers saw a 12-week-old child in the womb pull back from the surgical instrument and open his mouth and Nathanson himself narrated the voiceover saying, this is the silent scream of a child imminently faced with its own extinction. It affected many people. Many people changed. It went to the White House. President Reagan showed this in the White House. He himself, Reagan, actually was pro-abortion when governor of California. He signed pro-abortion legislation, but he himself changed. And you may know during his term as president, he wrote a book entitled Abortion and the Conscience of a Nation. And he himself changed in his views. Bernard Nathanson was an atheist. Isn't that interesting? He did not say that he came to this position uh, out of religion. He insisted he came to his position as a, as a doctor, as a scientist, and as someone who had come to understand the generally accepted principles of the dignity of the human person. But he was changing. And this is interesting. I had dinner with Bernard Nathanson. During that period, after he became pro-life, but before he became a Christian, and we invited him to my church in Philadelphia on a Wednesday night, and we had a big turnout, and as he was just sharing the burdens of his heart, and, and we had dinner together, and it was so fascinating because he talked about his atheism and how his, his new uh, commitment was based on science and based on medicine, but he understood the psalm that said that man is fearfully and wonderfully made and you could begin to see in his eyes how attracted he was to the body of Christ. It was fascinating, especially for our church. We were a Protestant church, and the only, really, the, a lot of the pro-life people he knew, they were Roman Catholic, uh, and we were sort of low church, Protestant, um, meeting in a restaurant, and, and he was so just, you could see, he talked about how attracted he was to the body of Christ. And in 1996, he was baptized by Cardinal O'Connor in St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan, surrounded by thousands of his new friends. People change. Change in a culture doesn't come quickly. It comes slowly, especially when it is in regard to the dignity of human life. Do you remember, I, I had a friend that I corresponded with this week, a pastor out in St. Louis, Dan Doriani, the men's group. We read one of his books together, The, Life of a, of a, the Heart of a God-Shaped Man. And I, I wrote to him and said, Dan, I'm thinking about this. I know this is really on your mind. And he wrote back to me. He said, John, remember the gladiatorial games, those, those events that the Roman Empire put on where they would bring hundreds of men out and put them in the middle one, two, two at a time to fight each other to the death for the, for the great amusement and applause of the, of, the, of the crowds. 
And from 250 B.C. to 450 B.C. in the Roman Empire, these games continued at great expense to the, to the governors of the regions. And, and, and they were bloody and they were terrible and yet they were accepted in the culture. Now once the church was established, you can imagine, the church was opposed to the games and, and, uh, or, and, and protested them. Now, not completely. There were people in the church who said, you know, the Bible does not say you shall not go to the gladiatorial games. And there, there was, you know, there was some reluctance even in the church. But overall in the church, there was this uh, love for life and there was this, this feeling we, we need to speak to this, this brutality And in the church, it's fascinating. You know, the, the, if you were a member of the church and you went to the games, the penalty was excommunication. It was severe. Church discipline. For this, they said, was giving yourself to man, murdering man. But change came slowly. Even after Emperor, Emperor Constantine uh, condemned uh, this action, it still went on because, you see, it's hard for a culture to change, to find its moral clarity. Dan wrote to me, he said, you know, John, each year in America, we average about 4.1 million live births. It's a lot of babies. 4.1 million live births in America, that is an average. But there are, on average, 1.2 million abortions each year has declined from 1.4 down to 1.2. Yet the rates vary from state to state. It's interesting. And Dan is in the Midwest, in Missouri. He said in New York, the abortion rate is about 28 to 30 percent of live births, or of, of, of pregnancies. In Missouri, it's down to about 8 percent. And some of the Midwest states, it's down to about 6 percent. Very interesting. Now, the Bible, the biblical witness, affirms life. It is true, and I've had it said to me, the Bible nowhere addresses abortion directly. There's no verse that says you shall not get an abortion. But the Bible constantly affirms life in every way. And, uh, and as, as Dan sent me some of his thoughts this week, he wrote this. He said, he said, the Bible affirms life, including the life of unborn children. And there is no law in the Bible against abortion because, from a biblical perspective, abortion is unthinkable. After all, there are certain commands that parents don't give their children. If your mom bakes a cake, bakes a nice cake, and it's lunchtime, and she goes out, she says, Don't eat the cake, it's for dinner. But she never says, don't eat the Tupperware. I need it for leftovers. Why is that? Because, because um, eating the Tupperware is unthinkable. Nobody's going to do that. And he says, similarly, abortion was unthinkable in Israel. Here's why. First of all, Psalm 127, verse 1. It teaches us that children are a blessing from God. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. 
And in the ancient world, whenever a woman was pregnant, it was received with great joy and songs and thanksgiving. It's not seen as a problem. To, to abort the child would be to, to, uh, be, a dis, to be disgraced because everyone wanted children. God is the author of life. The child is a gift. Why would you get rid of the gift? And then secondly, the Bible affirms children and unborn children as people. Our text today. As you are knit together in the womb, you are you. You are you. At 11 weeks. Just 11 weeks. You are wonderfully put together. At five months, and now the technology so far beyond what Bernard Nathanson had in 1985. At five months, you are developed. Yes, you're tiny. But you are you at five months. At six months, you sleep, you move. And at nine months, well, you're not that much different, except you are breathing air no longer through the umbilical cord, but with your own lungs. In Luke 1.44, you know the passage, when Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist and she meets Mary, who is carrying Jesus. And what happens? She says, the child leaped for joy. Scripture calls John the Baptist a child before his birth. Now, some people disagree. Secular people disagree. We have to be allowed to talk about this. Who's leading conversations about this? Well, Pastor Doriani sent me uh, some some quotes from a professor at Princeton University, Peter Singer, who is just highly acclaimed as an ethicist today. And he writes at great length about this. And Singer thinks we should make decisions through this question. What causes pain? What causes pleasure? Pleasure. What causes happiness? And what causes misery? Now, Peter Singer himself believes that an unborn baby is clearly a living human. But, he says, quote, we should recognize that the fact that a being is human and alive does not in itself tell us whether it is wrong to take that being's life. What is so special about the fact that a life is human? And over many pages and several books, Singer makes the point that, that, that being human in and of itself does not... D decide whether or not that person should be able to live. And he's very consistent. He says, look, that unborn child can't have preferences. So nothing then can weigh against the mother's preferences. She can do as she pleases. But of course, he is consistent with himself, and he writes further. Pay attention to this. Peter Singer says, there is no sharp distinction between the fetus and the newborn baby. Okay? What is the sharp distinction between, sorry, between this one and this one? Newborns, 
this one, lack the essential traits of personhood. Rationality, their mind isn't developed. Autonomy, they are not able to care for themselves. Even self-consciousness. Therefore, it is possible, Singer writes, to kill a newborn baby if, for example, it has birth defects that will cause pain to the mother and child. The newborn has no capacity to desire to live. And then he goes on. Okay. Now, that's opinion. We can argue one way or another against it. Really, the the crisis, of course, occurs for people who are involved in the moment when they have a pregnancy that they did not expect or desire. And when that happens, now you're really involved. It's right at that point that many people, both the father and the mother, become frightened, confused, conflicted. I hope that in our church we offer a place where people are free to talk, to raise their questions, to be honest about how they feel confused or conflicted, even if we are clear in our own view that we want to stand for life, to choose life, choose the choose life, choose adoption, choose to parent, let us help you. But we have to allow people to talk about this issue. It's winning hearts, winning hearts in the crisis. That's so important. Dan says out in Missouri, out in Missouri in the 1980s, think about this, this is astounding. You didn't know this, I bet. In the 1980s, the abortion rate in Missouri was maybe 22%. Today, it's 8%. Now, now that means on the, on the coasts, in the big cities, it's actually gone up. And I gave you that article last year by William McGurn in the Wall Street Journal that says 61% of all African-American children conceived are aborted and 40 Some percent of Hispanic children in New York City are aborted. Yes, the rates there continue to rise, tragically. But he said there is in pockets, in movement throughout our culture, there is movement to win hearts and minds. Now, some of us are involved on this issue, and this is painful. Some of us are involved... Because maybe you've had an abortion. Maybe you abandoned a woman who carried your child. Maybe you pressured someone to have an abortion. Might just be a faded memory. Might be an open wound in your soul. And you're trying to cope. And you're saying, well, I'm trying now to be the best parent I can be. Or I'm trying now to make up for it by being the best person I can be. Listen to me carefully. It's impossible. It's impossible to pay it off. But Jesus forgives. Jesus forgives every sin. Every sin. You can't pay it off. You cannot atone for your sin. But God can. And God does through Jesus Christ our Lord only God can freely offering forgiveness he is not interested in our penance 
You know, some wings of the Christian church, they say, well, if you do enough penance, you can pay it off. God's not interested in our penance because that can't pay it off. Jesus paid for our mistakes. He bore our punishment. If you trust in him, you are free from guilt because of the work of Christ, not the work that you performed. And if you have sought God's mercy, and yet you say, I'm still... Pastor, I'm still conflicted. My door is open to you. My wife's door is open to you. Other people in this church, their door is open to you to just talk and pray, help you process it with Jesus Christ. Okay? I want to be clear on that. If we confess our sins, 1 John says, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then point number three is we who know the gospel say that that gospel makes us life-giving and life-affirming. I don't know which passages you can choose because there's so many wonderful passages of the Bible, but I'm, I'm drawn to Romans verse chapter 5, uh, verse 6. The senior high kicked off a study of the book of Romans this week. I can't wait till we get to chapter 5 because, uh, because the gospel is laid out so beautifully there. While we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And that is compelling. That when we were weak, He rescued us. And now we become eager to be rescuers of others, defenders of the, those who can't speak for themselves. We want to rescue as Jesus has rescued us. You know, a lot of people would say, this is a political issue. And to be sure, there is, there is a political side to this process. I tell you often, you should be good citizens. Good citizens, as Romans 13 teaches, pay attention to what's going on. Good citizens are informed. Good citizens vote. You know, John Stossel, who, is he on ABC TV or one of the networks? John Stossel, he actually says, you know, not everybody should vote. He says, stupid people should not vote. (laughs) What's he getting at? He's saying people should be informed. You know, he says, I walk around, I show people a picture of the chief justice or of of the vice president, and they don't know who it is. And he says, I want to say to them, don't vote. Be informed. Vote your conscience. But you know what? Ultimately, this is not a political issue. This is a human issue. And our influence will not just be, let's just get people to appoint certain judges that we like, because that just it took forever to change the Roman Empire on the gladiatorial games, and just getting different politicians in place did not change. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ shows us God's character. God is a rescuer. He rescues the weak and the defenseless. God could have cast me aside. In my pride as a non-Christian, in my selfishness and lust and greed and arrogance, and I've told you my testimony, you know, pleasant on the outside, awful on the inside, God could have said, you know what? I'm through with him. But he rescued me from death, the wages of my sin. 
He called you. And then he gave you ears to hear his call. And you responded. The great rescuer saved you from death. And he's made it your destiny now as he has rescued you, that you have this impulse in you to rescue others. You pass it on. And you capture the imagination of people as you carry it on. You see, um, I, I think I may have talked about Telemachus, this, uh, this monk in the 400s once before, but if you don't know who he is, he was a preacher who lived out in the boonies. And Telemachus, in around year 400, heard about the decadence of Rome. And he went to Rome and he saw the decadence and he started, he knew God. He knew the gospel. And he was so sad by what he saw that he stood on the street corners and he preached. And in particular, he preached against the games, but nobody would listen to him. Those circuses where men would murder each other. Then he saw the crowds flocking to the Colosseum and he said, where are you going? We're going to the games. And he went with them. And Telemachus saw these men brutally seeking to murder each other for the sport and the cheering of the crowds. He was so upset, he jumped down into the, into the field and ran to the men. And he shouted, stop it, stop it! And they stopped and they killed him. And they went back to killing each other. And his body was dragged out of the Colosseum. And his protests seemed to fail. But news of this guy, Telemachus, spread through Rome, went out to the Roman Empire. And people who said, You know, he said what I believe, began to grow. And sentiment began to grow, and it was soon after that, in, by 450, within 50 years, it stopped. In the ancient church, early Christians loved infants who were abandoned. And we read the stories how, yes, there, was not, there were not abortion procedures. What they would do is they would deposit unwanted children in town dumps in pagan Rome. And the Christians would go there and would rescue these infants at the town dumps. And the people would say, look how they love. They captured the imagination of their culture. Psalm 119, verse 25 says, give me discernment, God. Give me discernment that I may understand. Paul prays for believers And he prays for you and me that your love may abound in knowledge and depth of insight. On this issue, insight is so important. Because there is one view that says this is merely a piece of tissue, an undifferentiated mass of cells that requires a medical procedure. And that's all it is. That is a perspective that is very common today. And they don't see a human, no, unless they choose to see one. But if you have discernment, if you know what the Bible teaches about human life, even in the womb, and that it is made in the image of God, that it is precious, then you will change. 
Jesus shows us how to win the moral vision. When people are in a crisis pregnancy, usually they are in agony, okay? Maybe the father is out of a job. Maybe they got news that the child is a Downs, has Down syndrome. Maybe the family is saying, take care of this problem. What do we do? We first must have the perspective that says, I am a neighbor to that woman and her baby. Jesus tells it in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You see, when somebody says, should I keep this baby? They might be asking, will I feel happier if I keep this baby? Or I'm frightened and confused, but I still feel something for this child. What should I do? Is, is this a person or is this just an alien cluster of cells inside my body? So a man came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what do you think? Do you remember? The man says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, good answer. Good answer. Do this and you will live. And the lawyer knew how hard this would be. So the lawyer thinks fast. And he says, well, who is my neighbor? And by this, he means maybe if I can narrow the category of neighbor down so that there's a relatively small group of people, maybe I can love them enough to gain my life. And if I can define some people as non-neighbor, then it might be possible. So Jesus answers the question, who is my neighbor? You remember the story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed over on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed over on the other side. And the priest and the Levite, you see, both decided this man is a stranger and not a neighbor. Okay? They had their reasons. The guy couldn't talk. He's, in a, he's, he's, he's unconscious. He doesn't have an identity. They took his, his ID card. They took his clothes. They don't know who he is. He's speechless. Don't know if he's Jew or Gentile. They don't know, so they don't act. Now Jesus continues in the story. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The Samaritan saw the same thing. He saw a man in need. But then the Samaritan became a neighbor. He became a neighbor to the beaten man. And the story says we must not ask, who is my neighbor and who isn't? Rather, what Jesus does is he captures the moral moment in the vision and he says, we should become neighbor to whoever cross, crosses our path. And this tells us Jesus' perspective on crisis pregnancies. If somebody asks, 
Is this cluster of cells a person? They're asking the wrong question. You can't define them away. Jesus says, don't ask. Jesus says, become a neighbor. And here's the kicker. Jesus didn't just tell the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus became the Good Samaritan. Jesus didn't just tell the story of how you should live. Jesus saw me when I was dead in my trespasses and sins, when the devil and when sin had beaten me up and I'm bloody on the side of the road and he left his throne in heaven and he came to earth and he walked among us in the misery of this life and he loved me and he loved you and he embraced you and he healed you. He made you new. Do you understand? This is the gospel. This is what it means to be a Christian. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? If you are a Christian, Jesus was your good Samaritan. This is the day, if you're not a Christian, for you to become a Christian. For you to say, yes, Jesus, be my good Samaritan. Your cross, your resurrection are what will save me. And if you're here today and you are in a crisis pregnancy, or you know someone in a crisis pregnancy, we cannot sit here and say, you're not our neighbor. You're not our, your problems are not our problems. No, we have to tell you, your problems are our problems because you are our neighbor and that child is our neighbor too. I know that the elders stand with me in saying this. Don't hide. Don't be afraid. I remember in my church in Philadelphia, a young woman found herself pregnant. We had an elders meeting. She called me up and she said, Pastor John, I want to come to the elders meeting. I said, really? She says, I do. I knew she was pregnant. She says, I want to come to the elders meeting. I want to tell them what I'm going through. And I want to ask them to lay hands on me and pray for me, that I would have courage. This was about 12 years ago. It was amazing. She wept. We wept. Her dad, sitting with her, wept. We put our arms around her, and her son became our son in the church. You know, I, after I moved here to New York, she called me one day. She says, I'm engaged to be married. Pastor John, will you come down to Philadelphia and do the wedding? My son is going to be the best man. Wow. That was, it was wonderful. Can we be that kind of community here? I know you. I know we can. I know we will be a life-affirming, life-encouraging, life-giving family. People change. Bernard Nathanson changed. Maybe God is calling you to change today. Change and become a Christian. He knows you. He loves you. Let's pray together. Bow your head with me. Lord, you do know us. And you've heard now our hearts respond to this word. Anything, Lord, that it was unwise said by me, forgive and blot out. But anything that is of you and faithful to what your word says, would you capture the moral imagination of our minds? 
And would you capture the imagination of our culture? That we would stand for life and love life, encourage life. Oh Lord, for those who need forgiveness of sins, and I'm the first in line. We look to Jesus Christ on the cross and we say, there is my atonement. It is finished. It is paid for. Can you say that? For all your sins, related to abortion or not, yes, my sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus. I trust you. Be my Savior. And then, make me like you. Oh, great good Samaritan, Jesus Christ who didn't just tell the story, but lived the story for me. And may we go into this world and love our neighbor as you've loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.